I'm curious, how many of you took family pictures over the Thanksgiving gathering? You know, families all together and take some pictures. Raise your hand if you took any pictures of that gathering. I saw a few on social media, and um, I always always love seeing those pictures. It's neat to see uh, the generations, especially if you have family that you don't, parts of your family that you may not see, but a few times a year. I will uh, direct your attention to something uh, that I find comical. It's a website known as Awkward Family Photos. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but Awkward Family Photos is... Um, just exactly what it says it is. It is no more, no less than uh, pictures that have been taken by people of their families. Uh, and oftentimes during family occasions, or especially during holiday, uh, not all of them are made for pulpit presenting, shall we say. Um, but there's a few good ones. Uh, I li- really like this picture of you know mom trying to get her picture, uh, kids a picture with Santa. Uh, you can tell immediately... Uh, the youngest child is not thrilled by that, and mom didn't get out of the way of the picture quite uh, quite quick enough. So um, that's fun. I like the one, you know, sometimes it's good to get the generations together, uh, get grandma in the center and, and get a picture. And grandma was really excited about this picture. I don't know <laughs> can tell who the favorite grandchild is there. Um, I can't remember, this is one of my favorites, and maybe I've shared it before, but it's worth sharing again if I have. Uh, it's uh, another Santa picture uh, with a very small infant that doesn't even talk yet, but apparently mom and dad have taught the infant sign language. Uh, and if you don't know, <laughs> the child here is signing the word for help, <laughs> which is just great. Um, and of course, we always got to get a picture of the kids, and you can tell who's been naughty, who's been nice. Um, <laughs> As you do the awkward family pictures. I tell you all of that because we all have pictures that are sort of uh, awkward, uh, maybe a little cringeworthy. If you look back through some of your old pictures, thank you, Facebook memories, uh, you can see some of those pictures that uh, just are a little bit awkward. Well, <clears throat> today we're beginning a series that I'm calling Unexpected, and it is, it is about Matthew's account of Jesus' journey from heaven to earth. We sing that song, he came from heaven to earth. And and the Bible word for that, actually the, the theological word for that, is the incarnation. The Bible text for that is the word became flesh. I always like to do that around this time of year to remind us of what the Bible really does say about when Jesus Entered the world. So we're going to look at Matthew's account. Now there's four chapters, uh, two in Matthew and two in Luke. We're only going to look at Matthew for this series. You can look at Luke on your own. <clears throat> I always qualify when we talk about this subject because there's some, I mean, some folks, quite honestly, get a little uptight with talking about uh, the story of the incarnation and, and Christmas related things around Christmas. So let's address that. It, do we find Christmas in the Bible? No, you don't. You can read through New Testament and Old and any translation you like, you won't find that word. That's a word that human beings came up with. Um, Was Jesus born on December the 25th? Maybe. Uh, There's probably a 1 in 365th chance that he was born on December the 25th. We do not know. The Bible 
does not tell us. There's a lot of people who spend a lot of time trying to determine with all the, the clues in there, and they figured out that Jesus was born on December 25th or April 17th or whatever it was. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I think there's a reason for that. Because human beings can kind of obsess about certain details that really do not matter. When Jesus was born doesn't matter at all. That Jesus was born matters a great deal. That's why the Bible has four chapters on it. To tell us that this was a big moment in human history. In fact, even those who do not subscribe to Christianity cannot get away from it. They set their, what year it is, centered around that moment in history. And so to not talk about the incarnation, I think, is unbiblical. And we're not going to we're not going to shy away from it. We are going to look at what the scripture says at a time of year in our culture when, the, when the, the, we got Christmas lights and Christmas music and you know, all of the things in the Christmas season, I think to not talk about the incarnation of Jesus is a, is a tad tone deaf. So let's, let's open the scriptures. I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. As I said, we're going to be in Matthew's account for this series. And I want you to turn to the very first chapter and the very first verse of Matthew. And what I will tell you is arguably the most skipped over portion of the incarnation story. I hope you're in Matthew chapter 1 in your own Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, grab a, a pew Bible in front of you and take that as your own. Matthew chapter 1, I hope you're reading it for yourself, but we're going to put it on the slides for the benefit of those watching online. I'm going to read through what Matthew calls the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Babiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 
14 generations. So this is Matthew's list, and it is quite a list. We can gather uh, with, with just a few clues that Matthew was sort of a details guy. Being a tax collector, uh, Levi loved his lists. And he goes through the lists. Now, just a side note here, there are two genealogies if you read Matthew's account and Luke's account, and people say, aha, proof that the Bible contradicts itself. Well, no, that's an ignorant statement, because what the two Gospels do is beautifully weave together. See, Matthew tracks, as if you paid attention, through Joseph's line, which have been the legal lineage of Jesus. See, a Jewish person had to be able to track their lineage lineage, and their heritage all the way back up to Abraham. And so uh, Matthew does that through Joseph's line. And legally, though not biologically, Joseph would have been considered his father. Luke tracks through Mary. She tracks the, the, the physical, the blood, the DNA, and the bloodline all the way up through Mary's line. So Matthew shows the, the legal lineage, Luke shows the physical bloodline. But since we're on Matthew's uh, account, uh, there is a question that comes up with both of these accounts. So our family is doing a neat uh, tradition of reading through the Gospel of Luke in the month of December. It's neat because you can do a chapter a day and you you get to the end and, and it's Luke 24 and you're at Christmas Eve and that's, that's a neat way to study and reorient yourself towards Jesus. Both in Luke's account and as we've seen in Matthew's account stir up a very natural question. Matthew, why the long list of names? I mean, I understand that the word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and, and that all of it is inerrant, but, but was there an editing at, at any point in the compilation of scriptures? Do we need all of these names? Is it necessary? You know, I, I'll just be honest. With every Bible reading plan I've done, the, the genealogies is short of the skim over section. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. We, we're kind of a rootless culture. We don't pay much attention to the genealogies and the family lines like they used to, and certainly like the Jewish people did. I want you to think about for just a second. You probably don't know most of your eight great-grandparents. Think about all eight of your great-grandparents. My guess is you might know one or two, but you probably only knew them by name. If they lived a long time and, and you came early enough, you might have been a, a baby or a toddler when they were, were around. That's not for everyone, but for most people, you don't know your great-grandparents that well. One of mine was my great-grandpa, Alan. I, I remember very little about great-grandpa Alan. He died when I was about three. But I have a vague memory of him, but I didn't know him very well. Think one generation behind that. You probably can't even name any of your 16 great-great-grandparents. Your father's great-grandparents. 
You see, that's the culture that we live in. We're kind of focused on the people at the table with us now, and maybe one, maybe two generations past that. But, but it also reminds you that your, your life is short, and no matter how great you are, you'll be forgotten fairly quickly. And so in our culture, we sort of skim past this list. We rarely read them. And I can tell you, this is the first time I've ever, ever preached on it. These lists have several reasons that the genealogies matter. These long lists are important. First, it's an important introduction to Jesus. Now, you've got to think about it. We, we view it, we have you know, all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament, and we're separated the two by just one single page you know, that, that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament. But think about it. In the context of the historical timeline, that one single page represents 400 years of silence, as far as we know, from God. No word, no prophesy, no, 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 nothing significant in the history. We're talking about generations that went without a word from the Lord between the ending of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And so it's been a while since they've heard from God. What the, the first thing that the genealogy does is it refamiliarizes us with the story. As they come out of the spiritual dark ages, the people of God are being introduced to a great light. And as you read the genealogy, if you're familiar, if you've if you read through the Bible many times, you have seen several names that you recognize. God, I remember that story, and I remember that story, and I remember that from VBS, and I remember my Bible teacher time. I remember Jeff t- talking about this. You, know, you, you, you sort of piece together all of these bits and pieces in a matter of a half of a chapter. He has covered the entire Old Testament. We're, we're taking Scripture from a 30,000-foot view. Matthew's saying, remember the story that you're tied to. And as Matthew is introducing us to the story of God, he's reminding us that the story of God is not about us at all. It's very tempting, and a lot of preachers do this, where, where we center the words of Scripture around you and me, and what we, and it's, it's meology instead of theology. And, and Matthew says very gently, <laughs> it's not about you at all. It's about Jesus, it's about who he is and where he's from and his family. And so it's crucial to understanding what God has done and who Jesus is. And Matthew's introducing Jesus to the Jews as the Messiah. They had been promised the Messiah. There were specific prophecies about the Messiah. There are clues that we mostly Gentiles, don't see, that we miss. They go over our head. And specifically, Matthew is is dealing and he's saying, listen, this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He's a descendant of Abraham from all the way back in Genesis 12. He's an offspring of the king of David from 2 Samuel 7. He's He is the fulfillment of every purpose and every promise from Genesis forward. Even in Genesis 3, 
after the fall of man, God, speaking to Satan, speaks of one who will crush his head. And he's talking about Jesus. Now, not to be left out, because I'm speaking to a mostly Gentile audience, Matthew is also introducing Jesus to the Gentiles as well. He is showing them that Jesus came for them too. You see, it's so interesting because we view this from our view of being included, but, but Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Now think about this for just a second. For, for, for the history of God and God's people, there was only one group of people that had a seat at the table with God. At your Thanksgiving tables, do you have the adults' table and the kids' table? I don't know if people still do that anymore, but our family used to do that. We have, we have where the adults sat, Grandpa sat at the head of the table, and the children sat next to Grandpa. And I don't know if that was ever done intentionally, but, but it was just this flow of the genealogy of the family. And then you got to the end of the table that Grandpa had put all the leaves in, and at the end of the table was a tiny little card table. And, and as a kid, you looked and you thought, someday, I get to be at the big table. There was a whole group of people that did not descend from Abraham who spent their entire lives and all of their history at sort of the kid's table. They watched God work with them. They got to see the people close to the Father, but they didn't get to taste any of that meal. And what's happening in Matthew's genealogy is something so beautiful and something so powerful is that God is putting some leaves in the table for the Gentiles as well. And you and I should be very grateful for that. Because as we read these genealogies, we need to understand that God has a seat at the table for us too. So we take a little closer look at the important things that we learn from this genealogy. And, and I've, I've, I've kind of done a countdown here. Four, three, two, one. So we start with four outcasts. As we said, God has room at the table. And we see these, these women, these four women, that had such an unusual place in the family tree of deity. First we hear from Tamar, who prostituted herself to her father-in-law, Judah, to bring forth twins, Perez and Zerah. Then, then we have Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute, although some try to smooth that over and call her an innkeeper, but if we're honest with the text and with what it's really saying, she was a prostitute and she wasn't even of God's people. And God saved her by her faith. She's right in with the, the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. We, we get the story of Ruth, who was from Moab, a Gentile, until her conversion out of the covenant of Israel in Ruth chapter 1. We get the story of Bathsheba, who's not even directly named within the text, but is simply called Uriah's wife. Bathsheba was... An adulteress, she was best known for her sin. 
I mean, even her, her name kind of clues us to remind, oh yeah, she was the one taking the bath. And, 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 it, and if you think about how a person is known by their name and their character, Bathsheba is not well known. We, we don't name our daughters Bathsheba for a reason. And yet there she is. The wife of Uriah, whom we're reminded that was not an Israelite, but a Hittite. These four scandalous women are in here for a reason, to remind us that Jesus, even in his genealogy, was being sent not just for the people at the table, but that he came to save sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, Matthew says this, or Jesus, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the, in the genealogy, we three, see three eras, and we see that the good old days are a myth. We see the era from Abraham to David. This, this first period includes uh, the patriarchs and Moses and Joshua and Judges. And in that period, included all sorts of Sin, idolatry, and wandering, and enslavement. And then God would deliver them, and then, then they'd wander back into sin, and God would send someone to conquer them. It was a story of defeat as well as victory. And the people said, we don't want to be a, 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 a theocracy anymore. We want a king. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else. And so they move to the second phase. Sorry. The second phase from uh, David into exile. The second period represents the monarchy, the united kingdom of God's people. Uh, three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then after that, we move to a divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. I, I know these lessons don't apply. I know we would have no familiarity with a nation that at one time was all together and then gradually became divided. I know that that's completely hard to imagine. But if you can, just try to imagine a nation that at one time was unified in their, in their principles and, and the things which they followed and, and believed to be true, and then after a while began to fall away to foreign gods. And then as the nation was divided, they had all sorts of kings, very few good kings, an abundance of ungodly and wicked kings. This period is a largely a, a period of decline and defeat. And it ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And you need to know there was no greater sadness in Israel in that time before or since. As Israel watched the temple destroyed and their brothers being carried off into captivity. And then the time of exile when they, they lived in a strange land. And this third period was a time of captivity and exile and frustration it's a period of obscurity and anonymity, Israel's dark ages, and 400 years of silence. I, I know it's easy in the history of God's people to think, well, if only things were as good as they were back in the, in the 90s. I know you all don't remember the 90s, but the 90s was a good period of time in, in my life. It was really good. And so for those in the 90s, they think, well, if only it could be like it was in the 50s. The 50s was a good time, and there was no sin in that era at all. 
You know, there were probably people in the 50s who said, you know, it's just not like it used to be back in the, in the early aughts. In the early aughts, people say, you know, I don't know what this country's coming to. The point is that as Scripture deals with us honestly, as we look at the eras of history of God and God's people, there is no such thing as the good old days. There just isn't. The only good in the good old days is God. But the people are fickle. And he's the only consistent good. Then we have two men, arguably the, 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 the big guys in the genealogy. Abraham and David. Now, Abraham was the father of faith, as it was called in Romans 4. And yet, Abraham demonstrated tremendous cowardice. He feared for his life rather than trusting in God. Two different pagan kings brought Abraham's wife, Sarah, into their harems. Why? Because Abram told them that, he, that she was his sister. He failed to love and protect Sarah. And he brought shame on Sarah and himself because he refused to trust God. David remembered after a man, after God's own heart, within the Old Testament and the New, and yet he was guilty of horrific sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and conspired to cover his sin with the treacherous murder of her husband. David's polygamy, but not just his polygamy, his poor parenting produced tragic results in his life four times over. When his son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, he did nothing. That neglect set in motion the events that would darken the final years of David's reign. Tamar's brother Absalom murdered Amnon, usurped David's throne, and committed public immorality with David's concubines. You see, Abraham and David, we hold them up, but these men had sin in their lives and just as many skeletons in the closet as you have yours and I have in mine. Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham, and yet David and Abraham were sinners in need of a Savior just like you and I. And God made Abraham, the father of his chosen people, Israel, from whom the Messiah would arise. And he made David a father of the royal line from whom the Messiah would proceed. May we remember that even the best of men fall short. And no matter how good you are, you aren't good enough. And no matter how good you perceive someone else to be, you need to understand that they fall short as well. And the last one that we see in this genealogy is that it's not about you from this, this one woman named Mary. Although she descended from David, Mary was an ordinary, un, unknown, and young woman. Contrary to the, to, uh, the, the complaint, the, the complaints, excuse me, the contrary to claims of her immaculate conception, Mary was just as sinful as every other person ever born. In fact, Luke records her saying this, My soul exalts or magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary needed a Savior just as much as anyone else. And God chose her to be the mother of the Savior who entered into the world, who provided the atonement to take away not only the sins of the world, but her sins as well. And so, 
remember this as we consider the lessons we learn from the genealogy. Take these things to heart as we remember this long list of people that Matthew had a purpose in the list. And so the next time that you read Matthew or Luke, may you not just skim over it, but may you pause with each name and think about how God worked in their story and how their story is a part of the ultimate redemption scheme. That's a good lesson for all of us. And and we do well to pause and reflect and meditate on the genealogy of Jesus because it tells us the story of what Jesus came to do. First, God only uses imperfect people. There is no one in that list who did it 100% right. There's no one on that list worthy of the honor that God is due They're part of the story, and God chose them to be part of the story. But in the list, we see God working providentially through imperfect people because there are no other people to work with. And if you're here this morning and you feel a little bit awkward about being in church because you don't feel good enough, I am going to tell you very gently, you aren't. But no one is. Please look to the person on your right and say, You're not good enough. Look to the person on your left and say, you're not good enough. The story of the genealogy is Jesus is this. He doesn't keep his promise based on your goodness. He keeps his promises based on his goodness. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a sanctification process, and it doesn't mean that holiness is not important. What I'm saying is echoing what the prophet Isaiah said. When you take all your good works and all the good deeds and all the good things that you've done, and you build them up and you put them before God, Isaiah says that's like a pile of filthy rags in your garage. It's not worth anything. God still loves you, but you're not good enough to get there on your own. They weren't good enough. They were called by his goodness, not by theirs. Number two, God uses messy people for his holy purposes. This past Thanksgiving, as you looked around the family table, I hope that you had this thought. But if you didn't, maybe you'll have it at the next family event around Christmas time. Take a look around and look at your family tree and say, my family tree has a lot of nuts in it. I got news for you. You're one of them. They think that about you. Jesus' family tree was the same way. The preacher, Spurgeon, said this, and I love it so much, I just quote quote it. Jesus is heir of a line which flows through the blood of the harlot Rahab and of the rustic Ruth. He is akin to the fallen and to the lowly and to the imperfect, and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure and spiritually needy of us all. And third... God works in his time, 
not in your time. It took 2,000 years for God to fulfill the promise to Abraham. But that timing was just perfect. Galatians tells us when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. You have a place at the table, not because of your goodness, but because of God's. You see, the family tree of deity is a cross-section of humanity, an eclectic assortment of people. Look around the table for just a moment, and you'll see righteous and sinful, famous and obscure, male, female, rich, poor, Jew, and Gentile. Despite their diversity, it wasn't diversity that there was their strength. It was the one thing that they all had in common. It's that all of them were messy. All of them needed a Messiah. And all of us are the same way. Galatians 3 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If we were to put it probably in the message paraphrase, we would say, and now you have a seat at the table. So your, your family may be a little awkward. Jesus' family was too. May we look at the family table and say, praise God that he in his infinite mercy and grace would offer me a seat. That he would offer you a seat. And that seat only comes not through your good works, but through his son. And so this morning, if you're here and you feel sort of distant, like you don't have your place at the table, I would gently ask you, are you in Christ? Or in Christ, everyone has a seat at the table. That's the lesson of the genealogy that we skip right past. That even though there's awkward people in the family tree, that in Jesus, we all have a seat at the table. This morning, if you're not in Christ, I'll gently say you're not at the table. But if you're ready to be at the table, we'd be happy to do just what exactly Paul said. Those of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you're ready to do that this morning, there's a seat at the table for you. If you have that need or any other spiritual need, we'd be happy to help you. Just simply go to the back in the next song. Our shepherds will meet you and will serve you in whatever way you can. Won't you come as together we stand and sing.